0: We welcome you to High Point Church today. We are continuing in our study in the book of Revelation. And again, I will preface what we're talking about today with a statement that a lot of the things in the book of Revelation are symbolic and to an extent are open for interpretation. And if I give you an interpretation and you don't, Agree with it, that's fine. And when we all get to heaven, we'll, we'll find out what the real way, maybe we'll both be wrong. Last week, we read about a scroll that had seven seals on it. That was in chapter five of the book of Revelation. In chapter six, we see that six of the seven seals are opened that were mentioned in chapter five last week. The seventh seal is not opened until chapter eight. Let's quickly look at what the opening of those seals brought to pass. The first seal, just a short view, is people see a type of peace, but it's not a real peace. It's a false peace that is brought on by the Antichrist. The second seal, after it is opened, all peace is removed from the earth. There is no peace. So it goes from this time of false peace to a time of no peace. And then the third seal is opened, and there's a great famine that covers the whole earth during the reign of the Antichrist. So after a short-lived peace, all peace is gone, and then mankind experiences this worst famine ever. The Bible says that few people will be able to afford just basic needs. This famine is going to be so widespread. And in the midst of that, without the mark of the beast, as it's called in the book of Revelation, that's described in later chapters, a person can neither buy nor sell unless they have that mark of the beast on them. We won't get into what that mark is or whatever, but it it will be some type of a mark. Then the fourth seal is opened. And the vision that John saw when the fourth seal was opened describes another great war and a famine. And this will not be a world war because it says that only a quarter of the world's population will die. A fourth of all the population in the world will die. And then the fifth seal is opened. And when the fifth seal is opened, John sees a vision of the millions of souls... That had been, or he sees the souls of millions who had been martyred for the cause of Christ. Uh, he describes those as being the faithful. The sixth seal is opened. And as this seal is opened, now we have to picture all this being symbolic. There's a scroll with all these seals on them. And as each one is opened, another event takes place. When the sixth seal is opened, instantly there's a great earthquake. It rocks the earth. The sun turns black, and it says that the moon turns red like blood. So we went from chapter 5 to the scroll with the seals on it, to chapter 6 explaining what six of the seven seals were when they're opened. And that brings us to our lesson text today. And that's in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any face or any tree. I'm sorry. When I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the forehead of the servants of our God. So John sees this vision after six of the seven seals are opened, and he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And we know the earth isn't square, so it's really not four corners. But it, it symbolizes that surrounding the earth, there's four angels. And they're holding devastation. And they're holding it back because he sees another angel come along and say, You can't do anything. Don't let those winds come and destroy all these people and do all the damage that's going to be done before the seal of our God is put on their foreheads. Now, is this a literal seal? Probably not. Um, It's a symbolic gesture. And I believe what it is, at, at the time that this was written, people put a seal on a scroll... To protect the contents of it and to identify who it belonged to. So to say that there was a seal put on the foreheads of the, those that were servants of God is basically saying that this was a seal that, that was a promise that these people were protected and it identified whose they, be, they were or who they belonged to. So again, it's a symbolic, of a symbolic nature. The four winds part Goes back to the Old Testament. Um, in fact, let's read one of them: Jeremiah forty-nine and thirty-six. In Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and in Daniel, it describes: "I will bring against Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heavens." And again, it's it's a symbolic thing, saying that it will come from from everywhere. Okay. If you and then it speaks. If you go back and read in verses 4 through 8 we started or we stopped at 3 but if we read 4 through 8 which we won't it says that those that God placed a seal on was 144,000 people now we're not going to try to discuss and figure out who those 144,000 are today there are some religions that say they already know who those are and we're not going to get into that either but The Bible speaks that there are 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, except from the tribe of Dan. Now, it is highly debated as to who the 144,000 are. They could be literally, like the Scripture says, it could be 12,000 people from 12 tribes. It could literally be that. It could be a specific number of believers that God will in some way shield or protect during this final period of, of distress or tribulation, which you want to use. It could be that the 144,000, which is calculated as using 12 as a multiple of 12, that it's a symbolic number for the fullness of the people of God, inclusive of, of all the people of God, that it's simply a symbolic number. If, it's, if that is the case, then it's saying that God, God will bring all of his followers to safety. And this is where it gets into another part of, of eschatology and study of the end time, is do the people of God, do they go to heaven before the tribulation takes place? Does the tribulation take place and then halfway through the people are raptured out? Or does the tribulation take place, and then after the tribulation, we go in the rapture? And there's three different views, and there's very smart people that will hold to all of those. They just happen to be different people. I'm not going to tell you which one is the right way. I will tell you this, that I believe that the rapture will take place before the tribulation takes place. And there are, again, a lot of symbolism. And the differences are, if you read, there's pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, mid-tribulation. And that all refers to when the rapture takes place. Here's the thing that's important. It's like a lot of other things that we talk about in the book of Revelation. It really doesn't matter. If you go before the tribulation, you have to be ready. If you go in the middle of the tribulation, you have to be ready. If you go at the end of the tribulation, you have to be ready. So the, the key to all of those theories are you have to be ready. That's the one thing they all have in common, and we'll hold to that. And I believe, and it, just to give you a, a little bit more on, on the three different things, the people that believe that we will live through the tribulation believe that God will give us additional strength to make it through the tribulation. And we'll get a little bit more to that a little bit later. In three different places in Revelation, in chapter 3, chapter 14, and chapter 22, it suggests, literally suggests, that the the seal that's on the people of God is His name on their forehead. Now, again, we we see symbolism here because we, we hear also and used you know, a lot of times in in Christianese that God puts his name on our heart. And we know literally that he doesn't have his name on our heart. And I believe what it's doing, it's saying that we are identified with Christ through the fact that we have taken on the name of Christ. We have received him into our lives and he is living in us. And that is the mark That we have received. Remember back in that that scripture that the the angel comes along and says, hold back the, the winds until my people have received that mark, the mark of our God. And I believe that is symbolic of the Spirit of God that lives in us. Going on. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And just thinking about John seeing this, this great number of people, that cannot be numbered just an enormous amount of people and he doesn't just leave it as as it's this great innumerable amount of people but he goes on to state something I think is very very important he says that it's people from every nation, every tribe every people and every language and I think that is specifically there to let us know that Salvation is not an exclusive club. It's not just to certain people. It's not just to the people in the United States. It's not just to people that are somewhere else. In fact, I'll break it down even further. It's not just to people that go to a church that says Pentecostal on it. Salvation is to anyone that will receive salvation as the Word of God says. What you call yourself is not what saves you. You can call yourself a biscuit and go sit in that oven out there and it will not make you a biscuit. You can call yourself a Christian and go sit in church and it doesn't make you a Christian either. What matters is what is on the inside and what you really are. And that is what I think John was trying to get across, the fact that it's everyone Salvation is to everyone. It is free. It's paid for. And we need to let the world know that. Now, some people have suggested that this great throng of people was everyone that had ever been saved. It could be, very well be that, the saved of all the ages. It could be Some other people believe that it's just the Gentile believers. There are others that believe that it's just the martyrs that were killed for the name of Christ. And again, I will come back to the fact that we really don't know who it is specifically. We do know one thing that each one of those groups has in common, that they are children of God. Whether it's the Gentiles, whether it's the martyrs, whether it's all believers of all time, the one thing those all those groups would have in common is that they have received salvation. And he makes it clear in this passage that while the rest of the world is getting ready to feel the full wrath of God, these people are protected. That's the whole symbolism for this thing is to let us know that if we have Christ in our life, if we have received Christ into our life and he is living in us and we have been renewed by Christ living in us, we are protected from whatever it is. And that's why I say it doesn't matter if we go before, middle, or after. The most important part of all of it that it's telling us is to be ready. It lets us know that God has accepted and He honored those that have trusted in him. And he talks about the the believers or whoever these people are, that they are standing in white robes. And the people that were reading this back when John wrote it, they could identify to that very well because the Roman generals, after a victory, when they would come through parading after a great victory, they would have on these white robes. So it was a sign of victory. And so John writes in these symbolic terms and says that he sees all these people in these white robes. What does he mean? They're victorious. They have won. They have accomplished what they set out to do. They have trusted in God to keep them and to save them. And here they are victorious in their white robes. White also signifies purity righteousness, it signifies the glory of God. So all of these things go into the symbolism of what John is trying to to write and what he is writing and trying to get across to us. He also says that they carried palm branches. And it's interesting that palm branches back in in ancient times were used for a variety of, of reasons. The returning Roman conquerors wore garlands made out of palm branches on their heads. Greek athletes received palm branches after winning important races. What did it symbolize? Victory. So the white robes symbolized victory. The palm branches that they carried symbolized victory. Another prominent thing in the Jewish religion that people would have understood is that palm branches were used to build the shelters during the Feast of the Tabernacles. So it was a covering. It was a shelter. It was a symbol symbol of vic- victory. And John is looking at this and saying, that's what it's all about. It's not about what's down here on this earth. It's all about that. No matter how we happen to live down here, in whether we're rich or poor, or, or whatever state we happen to be in, we will have victory, whether we're sick or whether we're healthy. It doesn't matter down here because this is just temporary. Exactly. Exactly. Another time when, when palms were used, palm fronds were used, is when Jesus came back into Jerusalem. It says that they took palm leaves or fronds and threw them down in front of him. Crying Hosanna. So it was a, again, that was a symbol of victory too. So everything in the scene we have seen so far in John chapter 7 points us to acceptance of believers before God. Now there are a lot of people that believe that on this earth, We live and we die, and it's over. There are some religions that believe for the majority of us, we live and we die and it's over, except for 144,000. I think what John is trying to get across here, that that's not the case. It's not a matter of it's limited to a certain group of people, and everybody else just dies and goes away. I believe he's trying to get across the point that it's this innumerable number of people It's this group of people from every walk of life, from every nation, from every tongue. And all of these people have one thing in common, and that's that they have Christ living in their life. Going on. Revelation 17. Let's read verse 14. I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, here we actually have the word tribulation that we talked about a little bit earlier. And he's saying, who are these people? And one of the elders answers him and says, these are those who have come through the great tribulation. That scripture there is what why? A lot of people believe that the church will go through the tribulation. Now, let me give a couple of views here. Based on the elders' response, some people believe that that is the actual seven years of tribulation that's mentioned in the book of Revelation. Some people believe that it's a short time of persecution of the church before the return of Christ. Others believe that all through time, all through the time of the church, believers have suffered persecution in all different forms. Christians back in the early church were were thrown to the lions. There was all types of just horrendous things done to Christians. And a lot of Bible scholars believe that it's a reference to believers all through time. Not specifically the seven years of tribulation. And I think what John was trying to do was to comfort the people from the first century church and us to know that whatever we have gone through, that we will be victorious. He asked, who are these people? And the elder answers, they're the ones that have come through the tribulation. They've come through whatever stood in their way in their walk with Christ. No matter what came along, they didn't change direction. They stayed on the course. Again, I'll go back to, it really doesn't matter which way you think of this. The most important thing that I think John was trying to get across is that the most important thing is that we stay true to what we believe. They came through. They endured. And if you look back through the writings of Paul, one of the things that Paul wrote about very often was endurance. It's not to those who start out and stop that win the race. It's those that endure to the end. And I think John is just reiterating that in a little bit more eloquent way, in a little bit more flowery way. Flower, flower flowerly way and more descriptive way so that we can see that it's the same thing and that it really is about us staying true to the course. Whether we go through tribulation of being beaten for what we believe, whether we go through tribulation of dying for what we believe, or whether we just go through things in life that the devil throws at us to try to get us to stop. Those that John saw were the ones that didn't stop. Going on, verse 15. Therefore they are brought before the throne of God and serve Him night and day in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Mm -mm -mm. So John identifies, he asks one of the elders, who are these people? He tells them who they are. And the elder goes on to say that these are people... That work for the Lord. Now I had a conversation recently with someone, kind of referred to this person back a couple of weeks ago, and he asked me the question, Are we going to have jobs in heaven? I said, I don't know. He said, Well, we have to do something. I said, I'm like what? Well, who's gonna build the houses? So, said, well, not me. I'm guessing that God's going to build them. I have prepared a place for you, which means it's pretty well already done. That's right. They're already built. They're just sitting there empty. But it does say here in this passage of Scripture that they... They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. I don't think that that necessarily means that there will be some people scrubbing the floors and, and some people repainting the walls and all that. I don't think that's what it is. I believe that we will have some sort of duty, but I believe it will all be related to worship and praise and glorifying God. And as I told this gentleman a few weeks back, I said, I think there's going to be some time where we want to just sit down with some of these saints that have lived through all the ages and just talk to them about what it was like. Sit down and talk to Abraham and say, tell me what it was like when you walked up that mountain with your son. Tell me what it was like to have that kind of faith to know that God will provide a sacrifice. Talk to Paul and and have him tell you the stories so you get all the details about the shipwreck. What kind of snake was it that jumped out of the fire and bit you that time? What was that infirmity, that thorn in the flesh that we've all guessed about all these years? Tell me what it was. And I think a lot of our time will be spent doing that. But I believe our service before God is going to be worship. And praise. And if that's the case, there's going to be an awful lot of people unprepared. Because they haven't done much of it down here. Not talking about anybody here. I believe that whatever it is that we will be doing will not be something that we dread. It will not be something that we... We won't sleep, but if we did sleep, we'd get up in the morning and go, oh no, not again. I don't have to do this again. Keep in mind, forever's a long time. There's gonna be a lot of days. So it's gonna be something that we want to do. And I think when we really, we can't realize right now what heaven is. We can't wrap our hands around eternity how long that is we can't really in our finite minds realize what god has done for us until we get there and when we get there i believe we will be so overwhelmed that this non-stop worship won't be a problem at all our voices won't get tired after we sing for a couple hours we won't be hacking and coughing and and somebody bring me some water because i'm feel like I'm going to die here. That's not what we're going to see. I believe that we'll just be able to praise God however long we want. We don't have to stop and go home. We just keep going. And it alludes to another picture that God covers His people With a canopy or a tent. And and I believe, I don't think that we're going to have these mansions with a big tent over them. Again, we're talking symbolic. And I believe what it's saying is that God's presence will be over us all the time. The Spirit of God will be over us all the time. Everywhere we go, we are protected and we are under that covering of God. I believe that all of those that have suffered here on this earth will find rest. Those that were sick, they won't be sick anymore. Those that had infirmities here on this earth, those will all be gone when they get to heaven. All the pain will be gone. I believe that heaven will be Different things to different people based on what was in your life here because there's people around the world that are believers and have have Christ living in their life and yet they live such a horrible life of starvation, of persecution, of just abandon. And I believe for those people to know that they'll never be hungry and the Bible says that specifically, that they'll never hunger again. That there'll never be the sun shining down on them until it just burns them up. What will heaven be like to that person? To us, we've got it pretty good. So we think about mansions. We have a pretty nice house here, but I'm going to have a mansion there. For someone who has no home, who has no food, who has no anything, just peace will be heaven. And he uses an interesting contrast here in verse 17. He describes the Lamb of God as their shepherd. Did anybody catch that as you read through this this week? The Lamb is the shepherd. What symbolism is in the shepherd is that in addition to providing adequate shelter for sheep... Shepherds had to lead them to good pasture. They had to make sure they had ample supply of water. They knew that sheep were an easy prey for wild animals, and so they had to protect them. If necessary, shepherds were willing to give their life for their flock. At night, it wasn't uncommon that a lot of shepherds would gather their flocks together and they would surround them so they could protect them. There was also times where they they had a a sheepfold that was a wall that only had one entrance. This is symbolic too. It only had one entrance and the shepherd could actually protect that entrance knowing that that's the only way that anything could get to the sheep. And there was only one way in and one way out. So there's a lot of symbolism here at relating the, the lamb as the shepherd because here's the lamb that gave his life for us he has provided a way of salvation to that sheepfold and there's that one way that's in the way of salvation so it's It's an interesting concept and kind of a, a contrast in, in two different pictures there And the imagery of this has the shepherd and it reinforces the idea of heaven being a place of eternal peace, eternal safety, eternal security. And we see all of these things all of a sudden, that it's not just about the mansion. It's not just about the streets of gold. It's not just about the walls of jasper and the gates of pearl. It's about peace and comfort and protection and safety that is provided for us as sheep to the shepherd. Genesis chapter 3, 22 through 24. And the Lord said, Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. This is after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and to take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Interesting thing here. God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so that they would not eat of the Tree of Life. You ever thought about why? At the point that they were at that time, God says that They've gone into sin, and if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. Which means they would live forever in sin. But God had a plan, and that plan was Jesus Christ that would come, and he would take away the sins of the world. we will go through that again. He said, they've eaten of the tree of good and evil. I can't let them eat from the tree of life. Back up a couple scriptures. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Why? Because he had sinned. Before that, there was no sin in Adam and Eve. They were a perfect creation. God created them in his own image. But now, they've sinned. And God said, we have to get them out of the garden or they'll go and eat from that other tree. And He throws them out of the garden. He puts a cherubim there to guard it and a flaming sword going back and forth. And they weren't allowed to do that. And God knew that there had to be a plan to bring man back to Him in that state. And that was the plan of salvation. That at some point, through all of the sins of his people, that he would take and come to earth in the form of a man and give his life and shed his blood in spite of all of that. And it would be for all of those people that had lived, for all of those that were to live. The elder goes on and says not just that there will be this covering and there will be no more hunger, no bad things at all, but he says that God will wipe away every tear from every eye. I believe that in some way the memories of of living on this earth and the the horrible things that might have happened to people, there won't be any knowledge of that. Because if that knowledge was still there, how could you live in peace? I believe that all of those things will be gone, and the only thing that will be in our mind is that we have made it to heaven, and we're here to worship God. That's a good point because you couldn't be in heaven if you still had hate in your heart for somebody. Good point. You have to get rid of the hate. To ever go there. That's for sure. In the fourth chapter of John, there is a story of a Samaritan woman that met Jesus at a well. And we'll keep keep in mind we're talking about the fact that no one is excluded from God's offer of salvation. And this Samaritan woman, you have to keep in mind what, what the Samaritans were. They were actually a mixed breed of Jewish people and Gentiles, heathens and Jews. And they were hated. They were hated more than just heathens because they were intermarried with the Jews. And the Jews hated them. They looked at them as lower than a dog. And so here's this Samaritan woman that comes up to Jesus, who's a Jew, And she asked him, he asked her, would you like to have water from this well? And she thinks he means literal water. And he goes on to explain that, she said, I don't have a bucket. And he goes, no, this is a different kind of water. This is a water that will give you everlasting life. And this story paints a picture of one who sits beside this bottomless well, of salvation. And it's filled with unconditional love and grace. And it's for whoever comes to the well. There is no one excluded. And John's picture of, of this multitude of people from all different walks of life and everywhere in the world in all different times, it just reinforces that. And that promise that Jesus told the woman at the well of eternal life is still available for us today. Now, as a side note, I want to read John 4 and 29 and 30. Here's what happened when, when Jesus told this woman of this everlasting water that she could drink from and have this eternal life, Look what she did. She went, and this is what she said to all her friends. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of town and made their way toward him. That's amazing. Jesus didn't go and get them all. She went out after she had received what He gave her, and she told them the good news of what had happened, and she was in such a way compelled them that they followed her back. I believe we have the same mission today. That if God has been good to us, then we need to go out and we need to tell the world, look at what God has done for me. You have to meet this guy. And then we have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. That's what this lady did. That was just a side note. The woman obviously understands two things after her encounter with Jesus. One is that the offer of God's love and compassion is limitless. Both she and others were invited. She knew it wasn't just for her, or she wouldn't have gone and told everybody else about it. You can have it too. And they all come back and follow her. She knew that no one was excluded. Not women. Not Samaritans. Not anybody. I'm sure she said what they probably already knew I'm a sinner. I was a sinner. And I'm a Samaritan. And He still gave this to me. And I believe that just, again, reinforces the the thought that salvation is for everyone. It is not limited to just a, a certain few. And like the woman at the well, we too are invited to turn ourselves toward Jesus by being open to God in our lives. And receiving that spirit into our life and becoming faithful disciples of Christ, just as this woman did. Uh, That's true. I believe she was mostly well-known among the men of the town. From the scripture reading that we've done today, what we've read in the book of Revelation, and I'm sure many of you have heard from past teaching and preaching, we know that the Bible is filled with warnings of of things to come. Romans 5 and 8 says that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And the Bible talks a lot about hell. It talks about the warnings of, of punishment, of sin. And when we look at the, the seven, six seals that we've seen open so far, we see this devastation and, and all these horrible things that John wrote about. But God loved us. While we were yet sinners. And because he loved us while we were yet sinners. He has been compelled to give us a warning of the things that are to come. He would be perfectly justified to punish us for our sin and unbelief with no warning whatsoever. Here's my word. You know what's right. Here's the plan of salvation. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's exactly right. Here's here's the, the key to this. He does love us. And because He does love us, He does warn us. Sometimes the warnings of the Scripture, even back in the Old Testament... When the children of Israel were disobedient, there were times when God's wrath was poured out on them in a terrible way. But the fact that was always the same through all of this is they knew what they had to do and they chose not to do it. Sometimes these things, things sound severe. They often reflect God's hatred of sin. It's not God's hatred of men, but God's hatred of sin. Many of the places in the Bible, they warn us of the condemnation that will befall sinners. In all different ways. We see it from the Old Testament all the way to the book of Revelation and we have all of these warnings and all of these things to tell us. They're often unsettling, unpleasant, sometimes terrifying. That's right. But all of these things are admonitions from a loving God who, as we have seen, weeps over the destruction Of the wicked. There's never a place where it said God enjoyed destroying anybody. And all of these things are further proof that God really is love. And here's what God offers to everyone He extends His love to everyone as put forth in the gospel. Just look at the example of the Samaritan woman. She wasn't a good person. Go back and read John chapter 4 sometime, and it tells you, you can kind of tell what kind of person she was. She was a woman, she was not a good person, and she was Samaritan. And Jesus still offered her the same thing. God offers grace. And mercy. Consider for just a moment the unlimited breadth of this offer. No one is excluded. Salvation in Christ is freely and indiscriminately offered to all. In Matthew 22, verses 2 through 14, and we're not going to read that. But there's a parable of a king who was going to have a a marriage celebration for his son. And he sent his servants out to invite all the wedding guests in. And the scripture says that they were unwilling to come. And the king sent his servants out again and, and he told them to say, I have prepared a dinner. My oxen and fatted livestock, they are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But even after the second invitation, the invited guests remained unwilling to come to the feast. In fact, the scripture says that they paid no attention and they went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. Another he had his slaves and he had to go do whatever he did to his slaves, mistreat them, and he killed them. And it was outrageous. The king was outraged by this behavior. And he judged them for it. The scripture says, Then he told his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. And then in verse 9 he tells them to go out to the main highways and find as many as you can. And everyone you find, invite them to the wedding feast. Anyone you find. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. And I believe this paints this picture of this is us. We're the anyone. Because remember, Christ came first to the Jews. And the invitation was given to them, but they didn't accept it. And so then it was given to us as the Gentiles, and we have the same invitation that was initially given given to those that were the chosen. And this invitation is, is open to everyone. In fact, it says in verse 14 that many are called... But few are chosen. We're all called. The the offer of salvation is to everyone. God does not just pick certain people. And there is a theory of, of theology that goes along that line that God has already picked out everyone He's going to save, and that's the only ones. It's not true. It's to whosoever will. Many are called, but not all of them are chosen. The imitation is given indiscriminately to everyone. Whosoever will. But this is the good part. God's love for mankind does not just stop with a warning of judgment. Salvation is not just about fear of having to go through all the things of judgment. Salvation is not coming to Christ just because you don't want to go through all those things in the book of Revelation. That's not why we are saved. Now, there are people that will preach that, and yes, it will stir up an emotion in people often that will send them running to the altar. But as soon as the fear is gone... Most of the time, so are those people. I've seen it many times. The thing that God offered and the thing that Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman wasn't fear. It was love. And I believe we have to look at the balance of the two. We can't have all of one and none of the other. But we have to realize that God offers love. If we choose not to accept it, then there is a penalty. He invites everyone to partake of His mercy and of His grace. He offers forgiveness. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29 says, Come unto Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He doesn't speak anything about judgment there. Nothing about His wrath. Because that is the call that is to us today, is to come to Him. And if we do, He will give us peace. He will give us rest. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. These verses should be evidence that the gospel is a free offer of Christ, and salvation is to all who hear. Those who deny the free offer, those who say that it's anything other than a free offer from Christ, they alter the nature of the gospel itself. For me to stand here and tell you anything else, Paul came into a group of people one time and he said, I preach nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. And if I were to stand here and tell you anything else today, I would be wrong. God's love extends to the whole world. It covers all of humanity. We see it in His grace. We see it in His compassion. We see it in His admonitions to the lost. We also see it in the warnings of things to come. We can take from the Scriptures like the ones we've read today in Revelation, and we can leave this place today scared to death. I don't want to go through that. We can stay up at night and have nightmares about all the, the, the horrible things that are going to be poured out on this world at some point. Or, we can rest in the assurance of God's love that He will protect His people whether it's in the form of the rapture before any of that takes place, or whether it's just in a protection that He will allow us to have as we live through these terrible times. I go along with the first, but whichever it is, God has promised that He will be there and He will take care of us. So we need to rejoice. This lesson today was not about fear. Fear. It wasn't to try to get you to say, well, I guess I better get saved if I'm not, or if I'm not where I need to be with God, I need to get closer to God because I don't want to go through this famine and the mark of the beast and and all of this stuff that pours out on the earth. It's not about that. Here's what it comes down to. We know that there are different endings to the story of this earth and its inhabitants. It's kind of like there's been some movies in the past that have been filmed all the way up to the ending and then as you watch it on DVD, you get to pick one of three endings and each one ends differently. They filmed all three. This is kind of the way that all of this plays out. We see the different options for the endings of this earth. We get to choose which one we want to go through. God is love. His mercy endures forever. He loves you enough to provide a plan of salvation and protection from the things that are to come. Whether, you, whether or not you accept it, that's your choice. And I would urge you, if you have not made that choice, that you would do it today. Would you bow your head? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all your promises to us. Lord, if there is one here today who has not made that start, if there is one here today who has not repented of their sins, Lord, I ask that you would just move on their heart today before they leave this place, that they would do just that. Lord, I ask that you would help them to see that the choice is theirs, That you have given us a promise of blessings. And that's what you would prefer for us. But there's another side to it also. God, please place it in our heart this morning that we would choose to go in the right direction. Lord, I ask that you would just help us to continue on. That each of us could be filled with your spirit. You have promised that you would do that. That you would come into our lives and live that we could be overcomers in this life and that we could go to be with you someday. Lord, this morning I pray that you would just move on every heart in this building. Help us to examine ourselves and see where we stand and look at the choices that we have made. Help us to make that decision before we leave this place today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.